Welcome to the HeartStrong Discipleship Podcast. Visit heartstrong.life forward slash login to access the notes from today and all the benefits of our membership community. One to the two and two to the three. Let the world see the Holy Trinity. Let's become HeartStrong Disciples of Jesus together. Father, it's a delight to pray for Peter and for all of us. We thank you for his study, his preparation. Thank you for his delivery, for clarity today on the internet for all of us. And Father, we just pray that every eye would open, every ear would open, and you would speak fresh to each of our hearts and strengthen them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, um, let me just do a very quick introduction of uh, chapter seven. So as dramatic as the events uh, of uh, chapter 16 uh, were that we saw yesterday, and as much as we might think that this would have settled the issue of God's choice of Moses and Aaron, God saw into the hearts of the people and decided to deal with any lingering questions that some might have had about who was supposed to lead the nation. Chapter 17 opens with God commanding Moses that rods were to be collected. And it was one from each of the 12 tribes. So the first question is why a rod? Now the tribe leader's rod was a symbol of their leadership and office. Moses had a rod too, and it became a symbol of the authority God gave him. Now we see Moses' rod demonstrated in action many times in the Old Testament. So when we look at Exodus chapter 7, we see it miraculously becoming a serpent, turning the waters of the Nile into blood. Uh, it brought forth plagues, uh, hail, locusts in Exodus 8. In uh, 14, we saw the parting of the Red Sea. Uh, it was also raised in prayer over Israel in victorious battle, and that's in Exodus 17. So the rod is a picture of God's authority over man. And there are several uh, verses in the Bible that makes reference to that. We see Psalm chapter 2, verse 9, uh, Isaiah chapter 10, verse 24, Ezekiel chapter 20, 37. Jesus, in his divine authority, is given the title, the rod. And that's in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. So verse 2 tells us that God called each of the tribe leaders to write their own names on their rods. And on the rod of the tribe of Levi, Aaron's name is to be inscribed. So the rods were all then to be placed in the tabernacle overnight. And God would declare which tribe possessed priestly authority by the rod that blossomed. Now verse five tells us, God says, thus I will rid myself of the complaints which they make against you. 
Now, we saw previously that uh, uh, over the last couple of days that a complaining heart is demonstrated when one complains about one issue after another, never being satisfied. And the people complain because, when people usually complain because they have complaining, discontent hearts. Now, verse 5 is really interesting because God, having demonstrated more than sufficient evidence to the complainers, now would no longer regard their complaints. Now God was going to actually judge their complaints once and for all. And then he says, and then rid himself of their complaints. So 12 rods now are placed in the tabernacle. Now note, just tuck it at the back of your minds. These are rods. These rods are long dead. This is, these are, this is dead wood. Okay. So when Moses checked the, on the rods the next day, Aaron's rod and only Aaron's rod had sprouted. It not only sprouted, but it also put forth buds. It not only put forth buds, it produced blossoms. It not only produced blossoms, it yielded almonds. And it had not only yielded almonds, but it also yielded ripe almonds. So it was obvious to anyone that God had made it clear. Aaron was the man God had chosen to lead as high priest, and the nation was required to recognize it. Now, miracles in the Bible are often of this uh, sort, that is, natural events in unnatural conditions, timing, and placement. So this was where a small miracle would have been convincing. I mean, after all, God could have just merely made a very little green sprout, sprout come forth from dead wood alone, and, and that would have been enough. But God gave, as in the words of Acts chapter 1, verse 3, many infallible proofs to demonstrate his approval of Aaron's leadership. And God gives us more than enough evidence. Our problem is the lack of willingness to see what he has already made clear. So in verse 9, we told then Moses brought out all of the rods to Israel, and each man took his rod. And this was a real dramatic scene. Each complainer from each tribe took their rods. And of course, they clearly saw that their own had not budded, and only Aaron's rod had. And in verse 10, God says to Moses, bring Aaron's rod back before the testimony, and it's to be kept as a sign against the rebels. So Aaron's rod was to be kept in the Ark of the Covenant as another example of Israel's failure and rebellion and also to remind the children of Israel that God had now chosen a priesthood. So as Pastor Barry talked about last week, this really meant now that in the Ark of the Covenant, there were three items. And if you look at the slide, the first column shows you the Ark contents. The three items were the two tablets containing the Ten Commandments, a pot of manna, and now Aaron's rod. 
And all three were symbols of God's holiness on one hand and the people's failure. How? Well, the Ten Commandments represented God's righteousness. The pot of manna represented God's gracious provisioning and faithfulness. And now Aaron's rod represented God's authority and leadership over the nation. So if you look at the last column, the violations or sins. So what does this mean? So by breaking God's holy law, they had sinned, the people had sinned spiritually. In rejecting God's gracious provision of bread, which was the manna, they sinned in the flesh. And in rebelling against God's picked leaders, they sinned in the realm of the soul. So the people had flagrantly violated and rebelled against all of these three things. So inside the ark were the symbols of the three main ways in which we sin, in spirit, in body, and soul. And the interesting thing to note is that when, as Pastor Barry noted, when the blood of the atonement offering was sprinkled on the mercy, mercy seat over the ark, only then would atonement be provided of the three main ways the people sinned against God. So the blood of the atonement offering actually covered all of these sins. So the next slide. So in verse 12, Israel spoke to Moses. They basically came forward saying, surely we die, we perish, we all perish. So though a bit dramatic and overblown, the people now clearly knew that it was wrong to rebel against the leadership of Aaron. And they go on to say in verse 13, whoever comes near the tabernacle must die. Shall we utterly die? So after seeing all that God did in Korah's rebellion that we covered yesterday, how Korah, Dathan, Abraham all destroyed, the 250 leading men of Israel burned, the plague destroying 14,700 sympathizers, and now this miraculous confirmation of Aaron's priesthood, the people feared that they were next to be judged, which was really not an unreasonable fear. And this kind of hysterical fear doesn't necessarily mean their hearts will change. This would not be the last account of a complaining Israel. Dramatic events don't take away our complaining and rebelliousness. The heart has to be changed by God. So that was chapter 17. We'll move on to chapter 18. And what we find in this chapter, it actually serves as a good counterpoint to all of this vine after leadership that we saw in the previous two chapters. Here, we are reminded that being a leader means added responsibility as the New Testament says, for to whom much is given, much is required. So in verse one, God tells Aaron, 
you and your sons and your father's house shall bear the iniquity related to the sanctuary and associated with your priesthood. So in verse one, God charges Aaron and his sons and all of his descendants to bear responsibility related to the sanctuary and the priesthood. So just in case Aaron started to get this big head for the powerful way God had just affirmed him in his role as high priest, God now reminds Aaron that he is now responsible for all of the duties of the office of priest. And if the priest, if the priests neglected their duties or performed them in the wrong way, they would bear the guilt. So they were accountable to God. God never gives authority without accountability. The two way, the two always go together. And what we need to remember is that if God gives someone headship and expects others to submit to them in his order, God also has a special accountability for that person. Now, verse 2 says, Aaron himself now um, was to bring all of his brothers uh, from the tribe of uh, Levi. Aaron himself was of the tribe of Levi. Now, while only he and his descendants were given the priesthood, the whole tribe of Levi, as we see, had a special calling. They were the ones to assist Aaron and his sons in the duties of the high priest, but they were not to come near the sacred precinct of the tabernacle. So the Levites were the support people for the ministry of the priests. They didn't have prominent positions, but were significantly important for the behind the scenes service. So every one of us in the body of Christ has a calling to fulfill and a role to play. The New Testament says we are all different parts of the body, each with particular gifts and callings. And that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 to 7. So we are called to be faithful in whatever our callings are. So verse 5 says, you shall attend the duties, God says, you shall attend the duties of the sanctuary and the altar, that there may be no more wrath on the children of Israel. So Aaron's faithful duty as high priest would have to now help to atone for the sins of the nation and provide relief from the threat of God's judgment. Jesus said that as we followed him, he, sorry, we would be the salt and the light to this world, protecting it from corruption of sin and showing the world the way to God. So what does this mean? This places a great responsibility on us as the people of God. Think about it. If we are to be the salt and light to this world. So I have a rhetorical question here. And that is, if our nation is in moral decline, where is the fault to be laid? Think about that. If we are the salt and the light to the world, 
So next slide. Um, chapter, sorry, verse eight. So now God gave Aaron charge over the heave offerings. And the heave offerings were brought to God as part of three things. We see the first was, it was part of the peace offerings we see in Exodus uh, chapter 29 and Leviticus chapter seven. It was to be a Nazarite consecration offering, which we saw in Numbers chapter six. And in the chapter we covered yesterday, it was for Thanksgiving. It was Numbers chapter 15, verses 19 to 21. So in the heave offering, just as a reminder, a choice portion of the animal, usually the breast or the thigh, was heaved or waved before God. And afterwards, that choice portion of the meat was for the priest and his family and was considered holy. So it had to be eaten in the holy place. Now, verse 9 goes on to note that the priests also received portions of, uh, look at the list, from the grain offerings, the sin offerings, the trespass offerings, gifts of wine, oil, and grain, and ripe fruit from the first fruit offerings. This was how the priesthood was supported in Israel. So when the people brought their gifts to God, they were to bring the first and the best, not the leftovers, not the worn, used, and least. God is worthy of the best because he is the best. He wants our giving to be a thing of delight and joy, not begrudged and cheerless. So right now, most of us here look at our giving to God either as a burdensome option or as a delightful privilege. Either we give God our best or the least, the first or the leftovers. And the question for us is, is God getting your best of what's left after you've given the best to something or someone else? Who we are is revealed by what we do with what we have. And I'm gonna repeat that. Who we are is revealed by what we do and what we have. So in verse 15, it says, everything that first opens the womb of all flesh, which they bring, whether man or beast, shall be yours. So when the firstborn, this was when the firstborn was brought to the tabernacle, either to be given or redeemed with money, it also belonged to the priest. So in verse 19, all of the things noted previously uh, in the last slide belonged to the priest. And it was vitally important that the children of Israel fulfill the obligation to bring those things. God calls it a covenant of salt forever. Now, this was really an eye opener for me as I was studying this about the covenant of salt. A covenant of salt meant a lasting covenant. Why? Well, salt is a substance that really doesn't change. You can dissolve it in water, but it's still there in the water. 
if the, the water evaporates, well, there's the salt again. So a covenant of salt meant a covenant that lasts. Now, salt speaks of three things, of purity, of preservation, and of expense. How? Let's look at it. A covenant of salt is a pure covenant. Why? Because salt stays as a pure chemical compound. The second is a covenant of salt is an enduring covenant. Salt makes things preserve and endure. And third, a covenant of salt is a valuable covenant. Now, in those days, salt was very expensive. So it, the covenant here we're talking about, it was unchangeable, incorruptible, an incorruptible covenant which would endure. Now, verse 20, uh, we look at verse 20. While the priests had the right to receive much, they also were deprived of inheritance in their land. And this is why the priests were allowed to partake of the gifts the people brought to God, because they, didn't not, they did not have any other form of income. They did not have any lands, fields, or flocks. Their livelihood was drawn from their service at the tabernacle. So they had no permanent position of land given to them because God said, I am your portion and your inheritance. I mean, what a precious place to say, the Lord is my portion. And I look at Psalm chapter 16, verse 5, that says, Oh Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. And there are several cross-references that I'll leave with you if you want to look at Psalm chapter 73 and 26 and Psalm 142 verse five. And I'll just read them uh, while I've got the time here. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart. And here's the word, my portion forever. And that's Psalm 973. The other verse I made known is, I, it says, I cried out to you, O Lord, I said, you are my refuge. And here's the word again, my portion in the land of the living. And that is from Psalm 142, verse 5. So when God is our portion, he is our inheritance, our hope, who we trust for our future. And we have to be satisfied in him. And here was the one that really blew, blew me away. And that was from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. And since it says, since we are all of royal priesthood, we all have the Lord for our portion. And I never realized that, that we are all of the royal priesthood. So the next slide, verse 21, and it says, God says, behold, I have given the children of Levi all the tithes in Israel as an inheritance. So God commanded the tithes, which was a portion of one's income, to be given to the Levites for their support. 
Now the remaining sections here are all about tithes. So bear with me as I go through this. The tithes belonged to God and he gave them to the Levites. So when an Israelite was not giving their tithes, they were not robbing the Levites, but God. Malachi chapter three, verse eight to 10 is just a great series of verses. Because God received the tithes from the giver and then he gave it to the Levites. Now what the New Testament does speak on with great clarity is the principle of giving. That giving should be regular, planned, proportional, and private. And that's from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses one to four. And that it must also be generous, freely given, and cheerful. And that's from 2 Corinthians chapter nine. Sorry, I've got a lot of cross-references in the, in the New Testament, but we will send them out in, in the notes. So the question for us is, how little can I give and still be pleasing to God? Our heart isn't in the right place at all. If we ask that question, giving and financial management is a spiritual issue, not just a financial one. And that's in Luke chapter 16, verse 11. And of course, God in that same verse says, in return for the work in which they perform. So the tithes were also given by God to, as pay to the Levites, not as gifts. Because the Levites had dedicated themselves to the service of God, the people of God, and the things of God, it was right that they be supported by God. And that was through the ties of the children of Israel. So it meant that the Levites had the right to expect to be supported through the, uh, uh, the ties. So verse 23 says, the Levites, now God says, shall perform the work of the tabernacle of meeting and they shall bear their iniquity. So the Levites also had a special responsibility if they were to be supported through the ties, they had to do the job and do it with diligence. And God, God goes on to say that among the children of Israel, they shall have no inheritance, which we covered. So just as with the priests, it was a trade-off. The Levites did not have the best of both worlds. They did not have a personal inheritance of land as the other tribes did. In verse 26 on, we see all about the tithes now for the Levites. And God says in verse 26, when you, talking about the Levites, take the tithes from the children of Israel, you shall offer up one-tenth of the tithes to the Lord. So did you know that the Levites themselves were not exempt from tithing? They were also to give a tenth due to the Lord. And then the Lord gave it to the priests. So since the Levites did, didn't have their own fields and harvests, and of course they had no offering of first fruits to give God. So God said they were to offer a tithe 
from the tithes that were given to them. And this would be their first fruits and their gift to God. Now, why was this? Well, it was important for the Levites to learn how to be givers also. Just because they were supported through the giving of God's people, it did not mean they didn't need to give. And we all need to learn how to be givers. Why? Because God is a giver and we are being transformed into the image of Jesus. In verse 29, as I'm wrapping up here, verse 29 says, of all your gifts, you shall offer up every heave offering due to the Lord. Now we are not told if the priests themselves were to tie from what they received. Presumably, they did not, because what belonged to the priests was considered holy and not to be used by others outside the priestly families. So this chapter clearly shows that the obligation of the Israelites to give was far more than just the tithes, and that was the giving of the 10%. And I'm just going to go through this long list of things that you that was over and above the tithes. First, the Israelites also had to give first fruits. That's in Numbers uh, chapter 18. And that was of all their produce and the firstborn. That's also noted in uh, Numbers 18. And that was of their flocks and herds. Portions of each that went to the priests and all Levites. Now, firstborn and first fruits were risky giving when you think about it. Their land might not have yielded very much produce, so their cow or ewe might not give birth again. Yet, the first still belonged to God and was given to the priests. But God promised to bless this giving of the first fruits and firstborn in faith. They had to be in faith. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 to 10 says, honor, the, honor your God with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. And this wasn't the end of Israel's required giving. They were, to also, they were also told to leave a portion in their fields unharvested, so the poor could eat from those portions. That's in Leviticus chapter 19. On top of that, a Passover sacrifice was required for each family every year. That's in Exodus chapter 12. Sometimes a simple temple tax was required, as noted in Nehemiah chapter 10, or a special tribute, as noted in Numbers chapter 32. So it's hard to estimate the it's hard to estimate exactly how much of the first fruits and firstborn obligations actually amounted to. And of course, it would differ from family to family. But the actual required giving of Israel was far more than just 10%. And besides, of course, the required giving, Israel was asked to give free will offerings on top of that. So this whole chapter speaks of willingly giving sacrifices 
of which the heave offering went to the priests. And that's in Numbers chapter 18, verses 9 to 11. Okay, so that's it for a uh, wrap-up for chapter 18. Uh, a lot of material there, a lot about uh, tithing and obligations for the Israelites that I certainly believe apply to us today. Well, well, Peter, we're fair. going to pray for you. We're going to pray that God opens doors to churches all around the world that you can share that particular portion of Scripture. <laughs> because uh, Life Center has always tithed 10% of what comes in. And it's based on the principles you just taught from Numbers 18 and 19, that our giving is an expression of our love. And a church exists because it is a representation of God's love to the community. So, Father, as we pray for Peter and for all of those that are leaving now to go to work, thank you that they go with joy in their hearts. They go with an overflowing. Uh, let them be the salt and the light that we've talked about today. And, Father, just thank you that what you are doing in the midst of all of us this week, as Peter has been teaching, is to strengthen our resolve to really be leaders every single day in our personal lives, in our families, and in our responsibilities. So thank you for your blessing upon your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. Have you ever joined one of our live online Bible studies? When you become a HeartStrong member, you will have access to all of our live Bible studies. These studies are amazing because we get to do it together. We listen to the teaching and then we spend about 30 minutes discussing what we have learned. You will hear powerful testimonies, insights, and questions and prayer times from people like you and me. We would love to see you there. Visit heartstrong.life and click membership to join. And we look forward to seeing you at one of our live online Bible studies soon. Let's become HeartStrong Disciples together.